OTB Sports Radio. This Sunday on OTB Sports Radio, we're bringing you an exclusive first listen of a special interview with Muhammad Ali's former business manager, Gene Kilroy. The last survivor from Ali's inner circle joined myself, Shane Hannan, for an hour full of great insight and never-before-told stories, such as this from just minutes before the rumble in the jungle when Ali fought George Foreman. Ali had no fear. And the time Ali went looking for Joe Frazier. Ali gets out of the car and the cops said, where do you think you're going? He said, I'm looking for Joe Frazier. Where's Joe Frazier? Here at first, this bank holiday Sunday at 7pm, exclusively on OTB Sports Radio. Listen on offtheball.com or download the GoLoud app. Rugby on Off The Ball. With Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. Team of us. Everyone in. OTB's State of the Union with Keith Wood. Right, you're very welcome along to episode four of Keith Wood's State of the Union. This is the show where we grapple with the very future of the game. We've been around the world so far at uh, Michael Check and Andrew Mertens on last week, but it's much closer to home this week. And I'm delighted to say we're joined by Philip Brown, the Chief Executive of the IRFU. Philip, how are you getting on? Uh, we're doing all right. It's like everyone else said, uh, trying to adjust to the new normal. Um, so we're, IRFU is working remotely for the last uh, nearly 10 weeks. And uh, so like many other people, it's just getting used to it. Yeah, it definitely takes a little while to get used to. Keith, this is the part of the show where I hand over and you kind of set the table for what the discussion is going to be like over the next hour. What do you want to talk to Philip about? Yeah, uh, hi, Philip. How are you doing? Um, uh, look, we're taking the time during lockdown to explore the game we love, I suppose, an off-the-ball discovery of some of the issues surrounding the game, um, a rough look at the finances and how they work, um, a look at how situations elsewhere in the world have an impact on Irish provincial and international games. Um, we also want to have a little look at the domestic game and where that fits in. Uh, and I think if we, if we were to kind of break it back to before COVID, um, how would you have said that the finances of the game were before this crisis happened? I think we would have been in a fairly good place, uh, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> I mean, professional rugby at the best of times is, is, uh, is, is a, marginal, a marginal business. Um, but we were effectively making uh, making sure that we washed our face in terms of the professional game, and more than that, we were producing a dividend which went back into the amateur game. Because at the end of the day, that's the that's the rationale behind all of this. Um, there's no point being involved in the professional game just for the sake of it as a, as a rugby union. It's to generate the funds to support the grassroots game. So we were in a good place. Um, we had uh, sold. Um, uh, Newlands uh, last year and the proceeds of that were used to purchase the office building that we operate out of in Lansdowne Road and we were saving about six, seven hundred thousand in, in rent and that money was being pumped directly into the amateur game. Um, the uh, international game uh, and the attendances at uh, the Aviva Stadium were second to none. We were uh, managed to, over the last number of years, fill nearly every game. Um, by good pricing and good marketing, um, and obviously the good performance of the of the national team obviously helps as well. And at provincial level, it was it was it was working well as uh, for, for them as well. Albeit, having said that, we just about wash our face. Yeah, it is at at um, at provincial level. It becomes incredibly tight, and the finances are always very very tight. Can you explain the sort of pressure that we're under to deal with the salaries because of what happens overseas? Uh, the 70 miles of water between us and the UK is, is really important because that's a, a, 
you know, it is a disincentive um, for, for players um, to some extent to, to, to actually move and move away from their family, their supports, support networks and all the rest of it. And you'll know more about that than me, Keith. But it, the, the, the reality is that um, the market in, in, in the UK, well, in England specifically, and the market in France uh, were certainly very buoyant. Having, I think the, the market in the UK probably tailed off somewhat in the last probably 12 months. Plateaued. Um, market in France for uh, cachet players is still very buoyant. The market and the market, the other market that's emerged really over the over the last number of months uh, or last six, twelve months has been Japan. It was always there, very attractive for South Africans. A lot of South Africans there, quite a few New Zealanders uh, and Australians. But uh, we're now beginning to see a move from from Europe across to Japan in terms of some of the. Some of the, the English players have started to move across, and that's obviously a very buoyant market indeed. Um, we've always taken pride in, in the fact that we put the players first, um, player welfare, we look after their training loads, their playing loads, uh, and uh, that and the 70 miles of water between us and the UK um, are really of a, a great advantage to us. Do you think that the Saracens... Um huge overspend and their breaches. Do you think that that had a, an impact across the game in Europe? Did that force other unions or other clubs to have to pay more to keep their players? Uh, I certainly think in the, in the, in the UK it, it had an impact. Um, uh, France are, and, and the market in France is pretty self-contained and they, they, they do their own thing. Um, it probably had some impact in terms of some of our cachet players here in, in, in Ireland and in that uh, certainly there was a player inflation, wage inflation over, over the last 18 months. Um, but, you know, we've always taken a view that we, can, we know what we can pay uh, and we don't go beyond that. Uh, and if someone ultimately wants to move uh, for, for, for money, you know, we can't stand in their way. I mean, if we look back at the, the pre-COVID period of time, would you have said that that model in Ireland was a sustainable model? I think it was, yeah. I, I think it, it, very much so. It's uh, effectively the uh, national team was subsidising the, 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 the provinces um, and, uh, and also subsidising the, the, the amateur game. So as long as we can continue to do that uh, and that the... the um, values generated by the national team were right up there. I think we were in a, a sustainable situation. Um, we also moved with David Nusifora coming in uh, a lot more emphasis and a lot more um, uh, money has been spent on the pathways. So we were starting to see the, the, the fruits of that really in terms of young players coming through into the professional game in a better state of preparation, uh, both physically, mentally, and in terms of their awareness of of, of, of the game itself. So, and I suppose the, the evidence of that was the under 20 team uh, this year and the unbeaten in the Six Nations, um, unfortunately, we're missing the, the, the tail end of that. But, uh, you know, we've had a good record with under 20s over the last couple of years. And just a slightly retrospective uh, thing, because you've been at the helm pretty much the whole time of professional rugby. I remember you there in the, in the amateur days that we were both there at the same time. Um, would you have done anything differently? Or would you, would you have liked to have seen rugby have done something differently in that period of time? 
In hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, maybe, maybe we should have been a bit braver at the start of the professional game. Um, we ended up in a situation where most of the national team in the in the, the late nineties were actually based in in England, um, and that wasn't uh, <laughs> you've been one of them. And yes. at the end of the day, that was that probably was uh, was was not as uh, you know we should have been maybe a little braver at that stage. Um, Having said that, I think there were advantages in not being first mover. Uh, I think uh, we were able to see the mistakes that others had made. Um, and uh, when we did embrace uh, professionalism um, after the, the um, uh, 1999 uh, World Cup, I mean, I think that was a real eye-opener. We effectively said, listen, we're either in the game or we're going to be trailing in the wake of everyone else. And you can't be... You can't be half professional uh, in a professional game. And there's, as I've said before, on many occasions, there's no reward in professional sport for mediocrity. Uh, and I think that would have been maybe one of your own uh, views as well at the time. Um, and we would have had discussions about that at the time. So, you know, we embraced it. And by embracing it, um, I think, you know, we managed to get to where we are. I think, by and large, yeah, there, there are some things we could have done better. There always is. Um, but I wouldn't have changed that much, to be honest. If the current crisis hadn't happened, what what were the expansion plans? What was the what was the ambition to improve the pathway so that your player base widens and actually just become self sufficient, even if players do move away? Or were you looking to expand into other markets? What what was the future of of the club system, or the provincial system, and, and the international team? Well, one of the one of the first things that uh, David Nusifora observed when he came here uh, five years ago was that um, you know we really hadn't put the resources into the pathway that needed to be put needed to be put in um, and it's it's really about putting the supports around the individuals um, uh, at provincial level um, and those supports being medical um, uh, strength conditioning uh, and then the rugby supports in terms of the tactical and getting an understanding of the game um, and uh, so I think, you know, we have put an, uh, quite a bit of additional monies over the last uh, three years, um, four years into that whole area. Um, and uh, there's still some work to be done on, on some of the academies. They probably aren't quite as effective as they should be. Um, but uh, the, the reality is our, our, the, the greatest thing we have going for us is, is a throughput of, of talent coming into the system um, because otherwise you're reliant on holding on to players uh, in, a, in a, a European market and potentially a global market and uh, that is not a, a sustainable situation really for anyone to be in. You need to have the pressure coming up from underneath uh, so that if players do wish to go abroad that's fine but we have plenty of good players coming up behind them and that I think has been uh, a focus of of David's work and a focus of the work of the National Professional Game Board over the last uh, uh, number of years. In terms of the, the wider scheme of things, Pro 14, we obviously want to make Pro 14 a, a competition that's um, recognisable on, on an international stage. And to be fair, I think it is. It's, it probably has as many international players playing in the Pro 14 as certainly super rugby um, and more internationals playing in the Pro 14 than there would be in, in, in PRL or indeed the top 14. 
so the, the the quality of the rugby is is actually good. You guys, Keith, you you can be a better judge of that than possibly me. But it's I I I think the quality is has improved immeasurably, um, and it's really about reaching out to new markets, um, and uh, CVC and the deal with CVC is very much about uh, reaching out to new markets. It's about uh, trying to tap into the experience and the the marketing new and the sports. Uh, marketing experience of CVC uh, to try and build the Pro 14 as a brand uh, and, and build it as an attractive proposition. Philip, are you nervous about having a private equity company coming in? Are they essential partners to the game now? I think they're essential partners to the game. Uh, I think we're very we're very we're very comfortable that uh, the the deal between CVC and, and the Pro 14 is actually a deal with each of the unions involved at, who are the shareholders of the Pro 14. So it's quite different to the sort of deal that would have been done with PRL, which was a deal uh, really with the club owners. Um, and so from our point of view, we're satisfied we put the protections into the arrangements with CVC that ensures that the control of the game uh, the way in which the game develops, the laws of the game, the regulations, all of that uh, lies 100% uh, with the unions. And could you see a possibility of where, because CVC are in the, the, uh, Premier League or the, the Premiership and in the Pro 14, that they could have an amalgamation or it could try and change the structure? Is that something that could be on the table as to be a more, maybe a more potent competition? Yeah. Well, I think... I, the answer is I don't know, and I think CVC need to get their feet under the table um, and uh, work with um, uh, Pro 14, work with PRL, work with EPCR, because the, effectively they have a major influence now in terms of the European club competitions. Um, and I, th I think the fact that we have a uh, shared stakeholders between PRL, Pro 14, with influence in EPCR, it, I think it will help put a, a fair degree of shape on on how the european professional game develops in the future and i think that's probably a good thing i think uh, we've always had disparate views as to between the unions and jurisdictions as to how the professional game should develop what it should look like um, and i think having a um, an independent party for want of a better term sitting in with it with with a vested interest themselves will help i think uh, bring about uh, I would hope uh, a greater degree of coherence in the professional game in Europe, and I think that will be of great benefit, not only to a, European rugby but to world rugby. There was a, a lot of conversation on the previous uh, chats that we've had, and we've talked to people all over the world. And uh, you mentioned it at one stage that one of the key components for the IRFU is their ability to manage game time, to manage the uh, amount of minutes that a player plays, to pretty much manage the length of their season. Um, and to have that level of control and yet everything else that seems to come out of world rugby uh, or any of the club owners or you know different unions is well if we can have another competition if we could play uh, a world final a club final maybe we could have a world cup the equivalent of that every year can we amalgamate everything else in it seems as if there's too much rugby going on being stretched far too much and i don't know where that sits with player welfare yeah, and that's that's been part of the problem over the last 15, 15 years or more. I've I've been involved in discussions for fifteen years in various shapes and guises as to what the world uh, or the global season should look like. And 
one of the frustrating things is that uh, because everyone has disparate views and everyone has vested interests uh, in, 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 in terms of holding on to what they have, uh, and we'd be the same as anyone else in terms of the Six Nations in that regard, I'd have to say, but it, it becomes very difficult to actually uh, change things. And unfortunately, compromise always seems to be on player welfare, which is just an unsustainable position. And we would be very, very strong on making sure that uh, the players are not uh, overpaid, or at least in a centralized system like we have, we can at least manage the playing time and the the the, the training load. Um, but this notion that uh, the top players in the world are going to play every game of a club season plus international rugby um, is simply not it's it's not tenable. Um, and I think that's the the biggest issue is that the, the easy answer is let's have another fixture and we get more money. It's I, th I think there's less is more and quality over quantity. Um, is something that you, you'd like to think would work, um, but that requires the cooperation of uh, everyone across the board, the club game, the international game. It also requires the cooperation of sponsors and, and broadcasters, and at, at times it's, it's hard to corral all of those different uh, entities uh, into, the, into the one space um, and moving in the same direction. And to be fair, I think that's what we're trying to do at the moment. I think the COVID-19 crisis is you know, giving us a spur on in terms of, listen, can we just try and see if we can get this to work? Um, so Sanzar and Six Nations, as you know, are meeting to try and uh, tease all of this out. Um, I think part of the problem in the past is, uh, you know, we've had too many people, too many cooks um, in the room. I think if we just have a small, small group looking at it, maybe we can uh, move things on. Having said that, the challenges are significant, um, and it it'll be, I think, player welfare is has always been one of the big issues, and one of the hurdles that we've had difficulty in getting over. Uh, if the Six Nations and Sands are, are sitting in the room, are the French clubs representatives there, or the English clubs? No, I think effectively what we're going to do is. Uh, there's a working group between Sanzar and Six Nations looking at this, how the, how the structure of the international season would look like. And I think now we're moving into a stage where there's going to be a, a greater level of engagement with all the other stakeholders, obviously the clubs in France and England, Pro 14, Super Rugby, all have to be involved. Um, uh, the players obviously have to be consulted as well. Um, so we're now in a, in a, in a, in a, at a point where we're, we're going out to a wider stakeholder engagement. Uh, with some potential options, I, I, I think it's it's a work in progress, um, and I, I'd say there's a, there's a bit of water to go under the bridge yet. It sounds like for the first time though that you're genuinely hopeful we might have a global calendar. I thought those, those comments towards the end of last week were the the strongest I've seen from anybody in, in one of the leadership roles, many of the unions about look there is a big opportunity here with the crisis to have a global calendar that actually works for everybody. Yeah, well, as they, as they always say, never waste a good crisis. Um, so I think uh, it's the right time to look at it. Um, there's a lot of other stuff going on, which has been um, uh, pretty revolutionary, I suppose, in, in the conservative world of rugby. And uh, I think the uh, Project Light, uh, which is the Six Nations project to effectively uh, uh, aggregate all their TV rights across the autumn internationals and the Six Nations uh, has, has 
has been a, a move in the right direction. And I think the to take that a step further is to aggregate the the rights of uh, incoming tours, uh, outgoing tours, um, and try and see if uh, by aggregating rights that you can actually generate uh, a greater level of interest from broadcasters with the possibility of maybe doing uh, some sort of OTT channel, um, which effectively um, gives all the rugby punters, want of a better term, a, a one-stop shop for rugby. Because at the moment, the difficulty has been that if you want to watch international rugby, you know, in the autumn, you could be looking at it on three different channels. You could be watching two games at the same time. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. And we're shooting ourselves in the foot as a sport. So it's trying to put some shape and coherence on things. And I think that, that whole project was, was a step in, uh, in, in that direction. And I think this, um, this work on, on looking at seeing if we can align uh, the, 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 the global season a, a little bit better is, is, a, is, a, is another obvious step to take. Uh, one of the points that comes up, especially for the autumn internationals, is a little bit of the envy that happens from the Southern Hemisphere teams because when they come up and play in the Northern Hemisphere, we fill out our stadia, um, we reap the benefits of that. Uh, they don't derive any income from that, is that correct? No, they don't, um, but they derive income from the tours when we tour in the Southern Hemisphere, and they also derive income um, every four years from the Lions tour, which is huge. Um, and uh, so the, the, the sort of international rugby economy is, is, is not as unbalanced as uh, some would lead you to believe. Mind you, the ticket price that you'll get in the Aviva could be three or four times what you might get in Dunedin. True, but uh, I mean, the, the, the reality is the, the Lions, Alliance Tour can generate 40 million, 50 million uh, for the host union. Um, so, you know, when you add it all up, up it's, it, the rugby economy is not as unbalanced as, as people would maintain. Having said that, you can go and watch Ireland play New Zealand in uh, in Auckland, and the, the top ticket price might be forty quid, um, whereas the top price here in Dublin might be a hundred quid. Uh, so you're right; there's a difference in terms of uh, pricing. There's a difference in terms of the market economies, um, and uh, but equally, there's a there's a difference in terms of the way in which the game is run uh, and the cost base uh, of the game in in Europe. Uh, player salaries are obviously much more significant up in Europe. Equally, uh, for a lot of the nations in Europe, uh, we'd have to build our own stadia uh, and invest in our own stadia, and that's not the case um, in Australia or New Zealand. Um, I mean, the best option is, is obviously just simply to rent a stadium. You don't have the, the, the headache of trying to keep it running, trying to make it uh, uh, wash its face. So there, it, it's, it's complicated. Um, and uh, you know you can listen to some people, uh, and they, they they would maintain it's very simple. They need to southern hemisphere countries need to get a share of the revenues up here. Well, maybe they should also take a share of the costs as well. It's funny because um, Michael Checker was actually um, wishing that they had their own stadium, and citing Ireland as an example. So it seems grass is always greener, no matter which hemisphere you're in. But um, what would the benefit of a, a, a unified season actually be? What why would it help Northern Hemisphere and why would it help Ireland to have a, a calendar year where, say, the Six Nations was pushed back a month and the Rugby Championship happened at the same time? Well, I think it's not so much a help for, for, for Ireland in that at the end of the day, 
we're in control of our players. It's it's really in in those countries where there isn't the same level of control, um, and particularly England. Um, and I think if you can decouple the club season from the international season, um, it, it it becomes much easier uh, for the clubs to have clarity as to how they play their or how they structure the competitions uh, and uh, knowing when they have their players. Um, for us, uh, it's 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 different in that we can we can control our players uh, in terms of when they play. Um, and when they train, so it's 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 uh, from our point of view, it's uh, it's a case of well, if this is the way that the rest of the rugby world wants to move, you know, we shouldn't stand in the way of it. Uh, but I think that probably the big advantage for us is by getting some sort of cohesion and coherence across um, the game. It will increase the value of the game uh, for sponsors, broadcasters, and ultimately, hopefully, the the, the rugby public as well. That's exactly what the CBC did with Formula One before ultimately selling it out to Liberty Global. They they relaxed all of their media rules. Bernie Eccleston used to not let people do any uh, video. Even the team members themselves couldn't have their phones with them to film stuff. Bernie Eccleston shut it down straight away. So when uh, CBC came in, apparently the Formula One team didn't actually know how to tweet properly or upload video to YouTube. It was a, a huge learning experience for them, but it massively increased the interest and access that people had. And you could see the, the knock-on benefit for everybody CBC have been in many cases painted as this uh, rampaging, villainous capitalist force who are going to come in and slash rugby and, uh, you know, make a profit and leave. But in many ways, what they've done is they've forced the unions to work with each other with a long term view and a plan to try and give value back to the investors in CBC, but also to do that with a coherency. Um, and like I can certainly see the benefit of, of these unions all coming together and going, well, what is our shared vision for the future of the game? Yeah, well, I, I, I think you're right, Gerald. I mean, that, they're a catalyst, uh, really, and, and in terms of bringing people together, um, uh, using their experience, particularly in the digital space, uh, because, I mean, that's where um, rugby really needs to, to, to work hard. Um, and to be fair, we've 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 got a good digital uh, program uh, in in the IRFU. It's probably second to none, certainly in this country and across world rugby. It's it's probably up the, right up there. But having said that, you know we're still in the halfway place compared to some other sports. Uh, and I think you know it's it's about using CVC as a catalyst to actually launch rugby um, to up the next rung of the ladder of professional sport um, because. We simply can't continue to operate on the basis of being dependent on the number of people we get through the stadium door uh, and the ticket price that we charge. I mean, there's a, there's a limit to that. In the case of the Aviva Stadium, it's 51,000. That's as big as it gets. You can't make it any bigger. And there's only so much elasticity in ticket pricing um, that uh, the public will, be, will bear. So we have to find new and additional sources of revenue. Uh, and certainly that whole digital space is 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 where we believe there is a there's a there's a, a new turn. Um, sorry, Chair. In in relation to uh, the English Premiership, but just the, there was conversations in the last couple of weeks about increasing the salary cap or um, making certain the marquee players still go. That seems to try and push it back up again. Do you think there'll be a stabilising in the UK? I don't think they have any choice. To be honest. Um, I, you know, it's not a 
club rugby in, in England in the PRL is, is, is not sustainable outside of one or two clubs. Um, the, the, they've managed to wash their face. They're well organized and, and they have a good business model. A lot of the clubs are dependent on um, individual owners uh, pumping money into the clubs. Um, and that, that, that works for a while, as long as there's someone there who's willing to pump money into, into the club. But if they decide it's a choice between uh, going to the rugby club that I own uh, every second week or my yacht in the med, and it's a choice between the two and they choose the yacht in the med, well, sure, there may be another owner to step in but it's it's not a sustainable business really, um, and uh, the values, commercial values, just simply aren't there. And I think that the difficulty has been that uh, there's been a, a a an arms race, for want of a better term, uh, between some of the clubs in England and uh, around player salaries, and it just simply there's got to be some sort of a cap there, otherwise. It's it's gonna it's gonna destroy the PRL as a as a as a in terms of sporting integrity and as a competition. Like if we go back to twenty five years and you said you were slow out of the blocks in terms of professionalising the game in Ireland, uh, so were the RFU and uh, we had their former um, commercial director on a couple of weeks ago and so and we were having a discussion about that and they were the RFU were slow out of the the blocks. The owners of the Premiership have put themselves into an incredibly strong position, albeit they're losing multi-millions every year, but they're in a very strong power position. Do you think there's any chance or opportunity for them to blend back in with the RFU again? Do you think there's a common purpose or common ground for them? It's uh, a good question. I, 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 think that, I think the horse is bolted on that one. I, 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 I don't think... Uh, it'll be possible to for the RFU to effectively move to a situation like we have. Uh, and I mean, I'd love to claim that uh, we were prescient and it was all, you know, good business management and all the rest of that. We ended up uh, in a situation where we held the player contracts. The fact of the matter is, there was no club in Ireland capable of uh, the financial resort or would have to had the financial resources to 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 actually. Put a professional game in place. Uh, whereas in, in England, it's obviously different individuals with large amounts of disposable income, and there are many of them in the UK who are prepared to do so. Uh, I think trying to put that genie back in the bottle and trying to move back to centralised contracts uh, in, in the UK will be very difficult. It may well be that they'll move possibly to a situation where they uh, control a squad of players who would make up their international squad, uh, which is kind of a halfway house. Um, and, uh, you know, to some extent, they've, they've, they've gone partway down that road. Uh, but that's probably as good as it could get. The other thing, interesting thing is this, um, and it, it, it's uniquely um, it's European in some respects, this, this notion that you can have uh, open competitions with promotion and relegation. And if it's not an open competition with promotion and relegation, there really isn't a competition at all. It's of no interest to anyone. The fact of the matter is the best professional sports in the world are all closed leagues, uh, which are, where you are able to effectively invest in, in, in your competition, invest in your facilities, invest in the infrastructure and the players. Um, and uh, I think Pro 14 uh, is, we, we're in a position where we can do that and have been able to do that. Um, 
Uh, and I think one of the difficulties with the PRL and top 14 to some extent uh, as well is the, the fear in the middle of the table that you could drop, you could drop out. Um, and if you drop out, you might never get back up again. And it becomes, becomes quite tricky running a, a professional sport uh, at what is really its infancy. I mean, professional rugby is in its infancy, but if you know, in a, in a situation where you can't invest properly uh, because of the fear of relegation, it really doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. AFL, NBA, uh, the NFL, they're all closed leagues um, and it's, uh, they're, the successful, they're the successful professional sports. Uh, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but I'm reacting to some of the things you said. So you talk about the Six Nations and I know there's been a lot of discussion about whether there would be a relegation for the last team. Um, uh, look, I'm not in favour of that myself either. But what I would say is that Italy have had 20 years in the Six Nations and it hasn't really worked out well for them. You know, they've, uh, their game hasn't radically improved. Uh, they're always in the um, bottom two within it. Is there any chance of them dropping out of it altogether and a team maybe along the similar timeline as uh, South Africa, same timeline as us, might pop in yeah. instead? Well, I think the, the, the reality, but I mean, Italian rugby has, has, has struggled for a number of reasons. Um, and one is I don't, I don't think they're particularly well organised. Um, and, you know, I think Conor O'Shea and his appointment, uh, they've, they actually have started to turn things around. And you can see that in the results of Treviso. Um, and it's just going to take a little bit of time. Um, and you may well ask, well, how much more time? But it's, I think if, if I, the whole issue of, of, of relegation in the Six Nations is, is and again, it was, it was put about that it was around the, the, the fear of, um, you know, of uh, Ireland and Scotland and other unions that you, you, you might get relegated and it, it was too much jeopardy. Well, the jeopardy really is the professional sport. I mean, if you, if you, we generate, the money that we generate from the Six Nations actually funds professional sport uh, and professional rugby it also funds the amateur game to get relegated uh, you, the first thing that would happen is we would probably if we ended up going into a second tier competition playing georgia russia spain portugal germany the the reality is we would probably have to shed two professional teams immediately uh, because of the impact it would have uh, on on um, on our finances and in, in those circumstances what you're actually doing is instead of stabilizing the game or improving the game, you're actually destabilizing the game and possibly disimproving the game. And so it becomes existential. And so that the reality is if you lose, for us to lose a team or for Italy to lose two teams through relegation, uh, it would be almost impossible to put it back together again. Um, so what we have to try and do is preserve what we have as opposed to trying to look over the fence and say, well, the, the, the far off fields are greener. But the fact of the matter is Georgia are always touted as you know, the, the, the possible uh, team to come in instead of, of, of Italy. Italy have beaten Georgia on numerous occasions and the record is there. Um, and uh, you know, I, think it's, I, I don't think you'd be getting a massive improvement um, by bringing in by bringing in Georgia. Now that doesn't mean that we have to try and improve Georgia uh, and improve the other European teams. And that's very much part and parcel of, 
what the Six Nations need to do along with Rugby Europe and World Rugby is try and improve things. Um, but I, you know, at, at this point in time, you know, that's probably down the agenda. Survival is, the, is really the name of the game at the moment. What about the notion of South Africa playing in our time zone and maybe being added to in a new calendar, a new rugby calendar? Is that even, is that even a discussion at any point? I don't think, well, certainly there hasn't been a discussion as far as um, I've been concerned. I know that lots of people discuss lots of things uh, and there's lots of chat about this and about that. But I mean, at the moment, uh, they play in, in Super Rugby, they play um, in the Rugby Championship. And as far as I know, there's contracts in place for the, uh, for the continuation of that. Um, and so, but I mean, you know, at the moment, you know, two years could be a could be a, a long time in, in 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 rugby or a long time in sport, given where we are at the moment. So who knows what might happen in the future? Philip, if we go to that now, um, do you see rugby going to be changed drastically? Do you see it down to being ten aside, seven aside for a period of time? Um, how are competitions going to be started, both in the professional and a domestic sense? Yeah, well, in the in the amateur game, um, we, I, I think we probably end up starting with the, with the short forms of the game. It, it makes perfect sense that, that we do that. And in fact, the short forms of the game might also happen in the professional game. The sevens rugby is probably an easier uh, an easier sell to public health authorities than the fifteen aside game. Having said that, the the entire the finance of the entire game is dependent on fifteen aside rugby. Being played in full houses uh, at club level and full houses at um, international level, and unless we can get back to that position, I think there's going to be a real a real problem for for rugby as a sport. Um, and uh, it's very easy to, to to switch everything off. It's much harder to switch it back on again. We've we've submitted um, detailed uh, return to train, return to play, and event management protocols. To the expert Sport Ireland's expert group, um, and uh, effectively, uh, we've driven a stake into the ground. I suppose saying we have to have some target to aim for. We're aiming for the twenty second of August um, to start up a set of uh, uh, interprovincial derbies uh, as part of the you know the tail end of the Pro Fourteen season, um, and we play them in a controlled environment in the Aviva Stadium. And uh, that unless we have that stake in the ground, um, it becomes very difficult to plan for anything. So we have laid out how we're going to do it, um, and it's you know it's best practice from various sports um, from around the world, um, and of course best practice is changing all the time because as we get the experience of what happens in Bundesliga and other sports, which have come back into into play, um, we'll, we'll, we'll probably inevitably end up changing how we do things. Um, but we have, at least we have a plan. We have uh, a, a date and uh, one would hope that the government and uh, NEFET and Department of Health uh, will look at those seriously. And if they don't like it, they need to come back and tell us why they don't like it. And then we try and change it. And we need to work with the government and with the health authorities to try and make it happen. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't think simply no is, no is not a good enough answer. We need to understand 
why, if it is going to be no, why is it no, and what can we change uh, to make it happen? But certainly the rugby economy is dependent on people coming through gates and watching matches uh, and on broadcasters and on sponsorship. Um, and in particular, I think uh, for the big interna international matches, if we don't have, if we don't move back to a position where we have full houses or we can have get spectators through the styles, pretty pretty soon we're all going to be all the all the major rugby unions are going to be in difficulty. Would you be looking in terms of uh, a government subsidy until that happens? Uh, I I think we may have to. Uh, you know, the, the reality is. I mean, we're not the only sport in, in this position. I mean, the GAA are in the same position. The FAI are in the, the same position. They're dependent on the big matches generating the revenues, uh, which support the, the, the multiplicity of activities that go on in their sports uh, um, and at club level. And uh, so they're in exactly the same boat. Um, and as I say, it's, it's easy to switch it all off. Uh, it's much harder to switch it back on again. And if if you lose if you lose an NGB or if you start losing clubs, you know at that stage it becomes very difficult to put it all back together again. Are you um, are you concerned that that might happen? That we could be close enough to that happening? Yeah. Well, I mean, as I as I said earlier, your know, professional sport is is a marginal business. We don't bank. Huge reserves. We we spend the money we earn uh, in terms of keeping four professional teams going, keeping the national team going, keeping the women's team going, sevens teams going, and also supporting the uh, the amateur club game to the tune of about 10, 11 million euro a year. So it's not as if there's uh, you know reserves. There aren't. We spend the money we earn, um, and we're a not-for-profit organisation, and. Uh, so the reality is um, the cash is limited. Um, yes, you can go off and borrow, um, but you know, there's no, nobody should get engaged in borrowing funds unless they have some idea as to how they're going to repay them. And at this point in time, I have no idea how we would repay uh, uh, any, any debt we took on. In terms of how a government subsidy might work, would you be hoping that that would be a grant or even if it was a, a long-term loan that the, the government were the ultimate backstop or guarantors on at a, a reasonable interest rate? Uh, have, you worked, have you had those conversations with the government yet? Yeah, we, we're having conversations around the margins. I mean, to, to, to be honest, the, the first number of weeks really have been trying to uh, deal with the, the, the immediate impact of the, of the crisis. Uh, and I think those conversations are, that's the next, is now, it's now, the natural next stage, which is to, to talk about, well, where are we going to end up uh, if we cannot start up uh, sport again in a meaningful way? And uh, I think I think there'll be a fair degree of anxiety amongst all the major sports, and not just the major sports, all sport, uh, as to how are we going to restart? Um, and if we can't restart, what are the implications? And you know, the implications for society are, are significant. Um, uh, field sports in particular provide organized sport for you know hundreds of thousands of kids um, and it is not something that any society would want to lose um, because they you know if, if you do not 
uh, effectively um, ingrained sport and activity uh, with kids at a young age, you're building up a real problem later on in life uh, uh, for the health system uh, with people who are not uh, active. And so sport has a value. It just doesn't have a value just in, in that context. It has a value uh, in terms of you know, cohesion of society and uh, coherence. And I think all of those things are, I mean, sport has, has a value, leaving aside the employment in sport. Um, so I think, you know, I think to be fair to government um, and sport, and I think they understand that, how are they going to deal with it is, is another matter, because there's a lot of hungry mouths out there uh, in, in, uh, across all sectors of society and across all sectors of, of, of business. Um, so it's, it's an unenviable task. Uh, for for government, um, but they do need to understand that sport it's existential for for some sports. Uh, Philip, if if you look at what would be palatable, I think to everybody, it would be that domestic game and that uh, you know the amount of kids that play rugby and all of the the benefits that they get from that. I think they can understand the subsidy there. I think that would be much harder for professional players. Um, are pay cuts on the on the horizon for our professional group? Well, we've already imposed um, with their agreement. Imposed is the wrong word. With their with the agreement of of the players, we have a salary deferral scheme in place, and uh, so we're in the second month of that. But I mean, we simply cannot build up a set of deferred salary liabilities uh, without, in, potentially, in the knowledge that we're not going to be able to pay them. So I. I don't see that that's a, that's a long-term solution. Um, you know, at the time when the crisis first hit in March, you know, everyone thought, well, we'd be back training, you know, June, and we'd be playing out the end of the season in July and August. Well, that's all changed now. So I think salary deferral scheme is something that uh, certainly we need to be looking at. Um, and ultimately, if we have to cut wages, we have to cut wages if, if that's what's going to help us get to the other end. Uh, in one piece, um, and unpalatable as it is, we wouldn't be the only organisation in the country who's having to face up to these issues. In, in terms of the, the um, pathway that you put out in the sake of the grounds, you said of August 22nd, there were lots of weekends in there where we could all begin to dream about maybe seeing the end of the Six Nations and potentially if friends are allowed to travel, that they would actually play in Dublin against Leinster in the, in the Heineken Cup. Um, since then, there have been a bunch of proposals that uh, Francis Barron made public over the last 24 hours or so for a potentially world tournament next summer. How do those, how do, how do those um, ideas get passed around? What, what's the process for a conversation even beginning to start around what might happen next summer? Uh, it, it appears that Francis Barron talks to the media first. Um, that's how, the, <laughs> how everything gets passed around. Um, and... Uh, and then he sends a letter to, I don't know who he sends the letter to, but it's, you know, I'm like yourself, I read the newspapers every day, and that uh, was the first I heard of it. Um, I assume someone will have a discussion with him somewhere along the line, uh, but it's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, can I see that working? I don't, I don't know. What do you think would happen next summer, or what? Like, what in an ideal world is it? Normal Six Nations as scheduled next year, and we get back to some semblance, at least, of the fixture list of normality. 
there's a Lions tour scheduled for, for next. Um, so, you know, the Lions is the biggest brand in, in, in rugby um, by a long shot. And uh, I think, you know, that's one of the, one of the things that, that's out there. And uh, I mean, if we have a dearth of rugby, uh, I think, and we, but we can play the Lions, I think that would be enormously positive for, for, for the game worldwide. Um, and they're playing in South Africa, obviously, against uh, the world champions. That you know, adds, adds value to it all. Um, I'd hope that we'd be playing international rugby in October or November, um, and I hope we'd be playing Six Nations next February, March. Uh, the issue is, what's that going to look like? Is it going to be behind closed doors or not? And, you know, again, time will tell. We're just not quite certain how it's going to pan out. Is the home and away Six Nations an option that's on the table? It's been talked about in the media a good bit as well. The, the, I mean, there's, there's, at, at this point in time, everyone is planned out because we're, we're planning against a set of moving targets and nobody knows what is or is not possible. Nobody knows what the public health regulations across a multiplicity of different jurisdictions is actually going to look like. So there's all sorts of wild and wonderful uh, tournament structures being dreamed up and all sorts of plans for X, Y, and Z. But the reality is, you know, nothing is 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 really in stone because we we just don't know. I, I would imagine that, you know, really by the end of June, July, we need to be starting to get some sort of shape on, uh, on what we are actually going to pump for. Um, I think obviously the July tours have, have gone. Um, and rugby is starting up in New Zealand and Australia. Um, whether it starts up in South Africa, um, I'm not sure when that'll happen. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, I suppose the big question mark is, will the Southern Hemisphere teams be able to travel up north um, in uh, October, November? Uh, if, they, if they can, well, that's, that's great. If they can't, well, then we're going to have to find some way of playing international fixtures amongst ourselves within Europe. Um, and I mean, someone said you could have the COVID cup, uh, <laughs> which would be, you know, some sort of cup competition. You could have home and away Six Nations. You could have a wider group of European unions outside of the Six Nations. There's all sorts of potential uh, opportunities or to actually play international rugby as to which one is it going to be, I don't know. Philip, do you think that um, the, the rugby ramifications for this could be uh, clubs going out of business, could be amateur clubs going out of business, um, uh, more unions going to the wall? If it goes on for a long time, I, for argument's for sake, if we, if we can't play international rugby, uh, this year, or if we can't play rugby this year, uh, or if we lose, and if we lose the Six Nations next year, um, yeah, I think it's existential for certainly rugby unions uh, within the Six Nations. I would say it's existential for all of us. Um, the same goes for for Southern Hemisphere, Australia. Obviously, their financial difficulties are well publicised, um, and. Uh, I think what would have to happen is unions would have to take decisions just to pull the shutters down and try and mothball. Um, and uh, obviously that 
creates a, another set of difficulties, um, uh, which, as I say, it's easy to shut things down. It's much harder to open them back up again. At, at club level, amateur club level, I think there's a lot of clubs out there suffering. Um, they're not just uh, suffering in rugby, they're suffering across a multiplicity of sports in Ireland. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, if we lose our volunteers um, at that level, um, because they've moved on, there's no sport, they've moved on, they're doing other things, or alternatively, really, you know, they don't want to get involved in, 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 a, in, a failing, in a failing club where they potentially exposed, where they're exposed themselves. If we, if we lose all of that, it, I think it's almost impossible to put it back together again. Um, you know, it's very hard to start a club. It's very hard to keep a club going. Um, but it, if at the end of the day, uh, they find themselves in a situation where they simply can no longer remain open and remain a going concern, um, I, I, think that, that, I think there will be clubs that are going to be in big difficulty. Um, and I think the government, and maybe I was being a bit sensationalist saying that it could take it the other day when I said it, you know, we could take sport a generation to get to, to get it to get back uh, to where it, where where it was um but I, I genuinely believe that if if we start losing clubs um in ga soccer rugby you name it if we and i mean my background is rowing i know that um uh, my rowing club is in, in in difficulty as well uh that the reality is it's it'll be very hard to get it all back together again and I think government need to be aware. I think, to be fair, I think they are aware of it. As to what they're going to be able to do, I don't know. It's a, it's a bleak enough picture. Um, I, I was kind of hoping that the return of rugby in the Southern Hemisphere would give us some green shoots to, to look forward to. And I actually think August 22nd is far enough away for if there are any issues that um, the government might have or the health authorities might have, that uh, we should be able to work through those. That's right, uh, and that's that's essentially what we're trying to do. Um, uh, we want to work through the issues, uh, and rather than waiting for someone to say, "Well, you can go back," uh, you know, in six months' time or nine months' time, or rather, just keep us on the hook um, uh, on, until they feel comfortable. I think we need to work with the authorities uh, to try and make it happen, because if we don't, um, we could be sitting here waiting for 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 a long time. And I think, you know, the Southern Hemisphere, New Zealand, you know, effectively, and Australia, they haven't had the same level of infection um, uh, as, as we've had in, the, in, this, in, in this country. Um, and effectively, in, in New Zealand, they've wiped out the virus. Um, and so it's, it's, a different, it's a different set of circumstances. Um, but having said that, we're, we're obviously in touch with New Zealand, trying to understand what they're doing in terms of return to train and return to play. And I think Australia are looking at doing something similar, maybe a, another few weeks down the road from New Zealand. Um, and uh, I would say probably some sort of trans-Tasman competition is probably the most likely first sort of competition that's likely to happen because of the unique nature of Australia and New Zealand uh, in terms of um, the, the level of infection that they have uh, and, and, the, and the way in which they managed to uh, effectively suppress uh, to a large extent uh, the, 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 whole, the whole disease. I think the whole world is, is watching that. Philip, you've been great with your time. We wish you the very best of luck and, and thanks very much for being this week's guest.
OTB's State of the Union with Keith Wood. Rugby on Off the Ball. With Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. Team of us. Everyone in.